Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. So glad you're joining me today. If you have not gotten your audio copy of The Mission Driven Life, it's still available for a few more weeks until we release the new website, which I will let you know when that's coming out. And I've had some people asking questions about the hard copy of the book. It is about to be on order. We did some pre-selling of the book at the event. As soon as we have the new website up, we can continue to pre-sell that, but we'll do... Um, an official book launch here in a couple months and it will be for sale forevermore after that. And we are going to have some bulk ordering items as well. If you want multiple copies, then you can get a discount that way. So it's new and improved. We've done a couple more edits on it, included some things. I'm really excited about it. We've got the logo inside as well. So you can kind of have a visual of the seven laws in the back of your mind as you read through it. So gearing up for those awesome things to be happening. I'm excited today to continue our discussion that we started last month on worldviews. This of course is something that we work on intensively in level three of the MDM Academy because it's there that we're working on becoming servant leaders. We absolutely have to understand people of all faiths and worldviews in order to really be able to build bridges, connect to the level of natural laws and principles, and really have an understanding for where they're coming from. And this is really necessary too as we try to create principle-centered solutions to world problems because as close as it as as our solutions are to principles, the the better results they'll produce. And so we want to really hone in on what principles people believe, what worldviews promote, what ways of thinking. And I will say that definitely <laughs> some worldviews are healthier than others. What I'm going to do is give you a frame of reference today. And this is something that Noble, what's his first name? I can't remember his first name. He presents worldviews in this way, and he's narrowed it down to 10, basically 10 areas of human knowledge and meaning. So this is one way of considering what someone's worldview is. Now, a worldview is the lens that we look through the world through, look at the world through. So this answers questions like, where did we come from? Why are we on earth? What's the role of human beings in the grand scheme of things? What should their purpose on earth be? What happens when we die? What are our responsibilities to each other, to the earth? What kinds of society should we build? What are the fundamentals of society? What kind of government should we have? What should our goals as a society and a community and a world, you know, people be. And so as individuals go through life, 
they have lots of voices that are speaking to them. Some are more clear, some are closer to home. And as they filter through those voices, they come to build their own worldview. There are some dominant overarching worldviews. Now you can kind of have your own take on the specifics within a certain framework of a worldview, but each of them informs your decisions. So as you decide what's most important, where you came from, why you're here, where you're going, what the purpose of life should be, what people should aspire to become, what's most important in life, what kind of societies we should build, then you have your own worldview. And that's under the framework of a larger worldview. So there are a handful in the West that we've adopted over the last couple hundred years, uh, Christianity, Judeo-Christianity, um, and then, you know, there was the modern worldview, the postmodern worldview, the secular humanist worldview, the new age and cosmic humanism worldview, the humanist worldview. So, these are all different ways of seeing the world. And what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm just going to give you these 10 areas that Noble recommends that we look at worldviews from. And then in another podcast, we'll look at other ways of kind of framing worldviews and looking at them. But this is a helpful one. So we'll talk about it for just a minute. And first, I'm going to give you the 10 areas and kind of just briefly explain what they are. And then I'm going to compare two worldviews so that you can kind of see the differences, what kind of difference it would make, because this is really informing, you know, th what this is, is your set of beliefs, right? And that informs your thoughts, which informs your emotions and your behavior. So the kinds of decisions that you make in your life, what you make most important, how you choose to spend your time, the, the, qual the kind and the quality of the relationships you build are largely built on these core beliefs. So these 10 areas begin with theology. And you could also see these 10 areas almost as like disciplines, educational disciplines. These are different areas of study that we have in our schools, etc. kind of like that. Theology is where it all starts. And this is the decision, basically, the belief that there is a God or that he is not. There is not. And once you decide and commit to there is a God or there is not, and this doesn't mean these are all fluid, like right, you can change your worldview throughout your lifetime and the worldview that you hold within the superstructure of a certain worldview that maybe you're a Christian, but the, the tenets of your personal worldview within the Christian worldview can change as well. But this is a big one. Of course, people eventually sometimes decide there's not a God or they decide that there is a God and they come to believe that based on their life experiences and their decisions. And so whether there's a God or not is the first point of reference. And then if you believe that there's a God, what's God like? And God could be a being. God could be beings together in one. God could be uh, an ethereal thing out there. Um, some people hold up nature as their God. The God in terms of theologically, an actual being that 
communicates with human beings, that's, of course, you know, the nature, the nature of God. So there is something higher than mankind. That's the first question. Is there anything higher than mankind that that's created mankind or that's had, you know, connection with mankind that influences mankind in some way? Um, and then what's the nature of that being or that power or that supernaturalness that, you know, it's the metaphysical what is it like? Philosophy is a set of ideals, standards, or beliefs which describe and create our behavior and thoughts. So philosophy is where we find meaning in life, and it's where we describe our relationships to each other and to the world. So this is um, how we make sense of, okay, well, there's a God, and so this is what follows. What follows is that there's a morality and that morality consists of kind of X, Y, Z. And that's one of these 10 is the next one then is ethics. So philosophy says, there's a God and that's where I find meaning. And that's how I know who I am in relationship to the world and to myself and to my fellow human beings, or there's not a God. And so that's where I find meaning. And that's how I make sense of my world and what I ought to do with my life. So I think, and I'm just going to say this as a side note, I have a running list of reasons why I believe God exists and arguments for God. And I'm always adding to it. It's something that's important to me. I would love someday to like put it in a book or something. <laughs> um, but one of them is that the, the concept of worldview even begins with the idea of God. The concept of whether or not there is a God seems to be something that no one, most people never can never completely get away from. Some people try to spend their lives ignoring it um, or pretending like it's not important or they don't care to know. But most human beings reach a point in their lives where they feel like they need to know. Now, some people will say this is because the concept of God is so steeped in our culture that it's because it's societally prevalent. But that's not really the case. It continues to be the case that worldwide, 80% of the world population still says they believe in God. That's pretty phenomenal for the fact that so many of them don't, I mean, most of the people in the world I've never interacted with, don't know anything about, will never meet. And many people live and grow up and die in rural places where the tenets of society don't necessarily really reach them or where they aren't overseen. So I just think it's fascinating that the worldview begins with such an important question. And I, I conclude from that, that if most human beings at some point in their lives have to wrestle with the question of whether or not there's a God and that so many people intuitively believe that there is one and build meaning in their lives around that, around that concept, there, there's got to be. If there wasn't a God, I don't believe that the human race would be having this conversation with themselves. And it's not because of a social construct. And it's definitely not because we're trying to explain the seasons and the, the, the natural sciences. People will tell you that the only reason we really have constructs of God was because we couldn't explain how the earth began and we didn't have any scientific knowledge. Now, some belief in God has been on the decline in some places where there's, you know, more scientific 
revelation, I mean, not scientific uh, findings, but anyway, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's just interesting to me that that is a question that most human beings have to wrestle with regardless of where they're born or the dominant religion or what's going on in the world or in their lives, that there's something that tells them that there's something higher and something that they can turn to. And the reason I'm saying that people don't, even in the past, there were rituals and they did things so that God would make it rain and blah, blah, blah. I get all that. But what you find in the greatest writings of the greatest thinkers so often is that's not the reason they say they believe in God. Even going as far back as, you know, ancient Greece, they talk about a belief in God as making sense of their their life on earth as being um, something that helps to heal their soul or buoy them up or help them overcome or redeem them. So it's actually for spiritual reasons, for personal, for reasons of personal morality and for reasons of personal healing and strength and comfort and power, not because I can't figure out why there's rainbows. So anyway, the, the third one is ethics. So we say, is there a God or not? How does that create meaning in my life? That's philosophy. The third one is, okay, then if that's the case, what, how am I supposed to live my life? What are the morals and social manners? What's the set of moral principles that I'm going to put in place in my life? What's going to inform my actions and manners and how I treat people in society and the people around me? Once you kind of have that squared away, then you find, you start, the next one is biology. So then okay, so now where's my place in the physical world of things? I'm a living creature. There's other living creatures. What do I have in common with these other living creatures? What's my anatomy? Where did man come from? Um, how am I related to the other living organisms on the earth? And how are we all interdependent? And that, of course, is informed by the previous three areas of theology, philosophy, and ethics. Next comes psychology. So this is how my mind works. I need to understand based on what I, what I, what I believe about God and about meaning in the world and about my personal ethics. Um, how am I supposed to, is my mind just a bunch of synapses going off and I have no control or is there really such a thing as free will? Can I really make decisions and control my behavior or not? Um, what is the purpose of my thoughts? How can I direct them? How does the human mind work? And what does that tell me about myself and about the world? The next one is sociology, which is the study of the development structure and functioning of human society. So in these first five, I kind of gain a fundamental understanding of myself in relationship to the world. What's, what are the obligations that rest on my shoulders? Who am I in relationship to my God and, and myself? What, what, what is my biology and my psychology? How do I develop those? What do they mean? And now I look outward at, okay, so now I understand a little bit about myself and how I'm to live as an individual in the world. What does that mean for the society that I'm going to live in? How does that inform my decisions about the kind of society that we should have, the structure of it, how it should function? The next one is law. So what should the rules of that society be? How should it be regulated? What should the actu actions of the members of that system, 
what are their obligations to each other? What are the laws that we need to have in the society that my previous beliefs have informed me to create? Then the next one is politics. This is how the government, this is how the powers should then be organized based on the kind of society that I believe we should have and the laws that should govern that society. Who has the power? Why do they have the power? What power do they have? What power rests with the rest of the people in the society? How are those laws going to be created and executed politically in that society? And of course, it's very easy to trace each of these elements in the formation of the United States of America. You can see how that predominantly Christian, but it's a Judeo-Christian ethic because of, of the Old Testament as well, how that, okay, there is a God, this is his nature, he's all powerful, he's, he, you know, he interacts with his children, he loves them, uh, he wants to, he, he, he rules them by his own natural laws and principles. So our meaning in life is to serve him. Our ethics are to follow his morals and, re and, and laws. Our biology is to control our bodies, to treat them well as, um, as embodying our souls. And we are above the animals, not on the same plane with them. We were created by God, so we are superior to the animals. The kind of society that we need to live in is one founded on family. The family is sacred. It's where children are born and raised to be good members of a larger social structure. And so the anything and everything that supports and undergirds and upholds the family should be supported because the, in order for us to live together in a society, we all need frameworks of family to return to and, uh, and support us. And so laws should be put in place that support individual free will because we believe God gave us free will. They should be laws that support the family. They should be laws that allow people to live according to God's moral laws. And you can see all these tenets prevalent in our founding documents, in the, in the writings of the American founders. It's all very clear that it was written from a Judeo-Christian worldview. All of those elements are, are present. The economics is, you know, once you understand where the power comes from, you know, ultimately in, in the United States of America, put together as a Christian society, rights and duties were an integral part of the power comes from the people because they are children of God and they create the agents of government that must, that must obey a law higher than themselves and submit to that law and citizens can run for office and participate in the in the ruling power as long as they submit to rights and duties and protect the rights um, and fulfill their duties so what's the so the economics is the la is the is the ninth area and this is of course how people how people are going to barter and exchange within the society that's being created. This is about production and consumption and the transfer of wealth. It's about who owns what, how they come to own it. Does the government own everything? Do individuals own things? Do, um, do families own things? You have different forms of government and aristocracy. There's powerful families. The wealth gets handed down a certain way. In America, the free market was the economy that was promoted so that individuals would have the greatest amount. And we were always trying to give the individual and the family the greatest amount of power possible. 
so that they could produce, they could consume, they could own, they could contribute. And it would kind of run itself. And then, of course, the government just had a little bit of regulating power. And then history is the study of the pa of past human events. So with history, you have a lot of questions being that you, that you want to answer. So what happened in the past? What are the actual facts about what went on? Um, which facts do we choose to focus on and which ones do we choose to ignore? Which ones do we promote and teach? What are the important governing stories? What are the founding ideas? How do we account for the facts? How do we tell the story of our past? And in the last 50 years in the United States, because of an up-and-coming worldview called postmodernism, well, there was secular humanism, which changed the deal in the early 20th century, um, that really changed the deal away from God. And so then that had some real governing power. Secular humanism, modernism, and now postmodernism are changing the narrative. First, we removed God and his moral laws from the story of the narrative of America that was very present in the first 150 years. And, and so our history informs our future. So how we see our past creates our future. And if you read some of those founding documents, um, you know, Noah Webster, Witherspoon, others that were prevalent, especially in the educational forum, talk often about we need to perpetuate our form of government. So if we believe that this form is really inspired of God and it's really the, the best way for people to, um, for the most people, and it was, the most people ever in history had the most individual power. And so we see a gradual moving forward of that. And then as soon as, you know, we settled slavery in our civil war, then even more people had more personal power. And we just kind of keep improving in that way of giving more people personal power. But in terms of how the original narrative was told, what facts were important in our history, how that story was told has changed in the last, especially 50 years. We first did this kind of separation of church and state thing where we said we can't talk about God in schools. And so that removed much of the foundation of the narrative and many of the facts of the narrative. Because if you can't tell the story of American history without talking about God and natural laws, then you're really at a loss to tell the story properly. And now we are retelling what's important societally, what what's important about law, what's important about politics. So these last five that have to do with kind of the outward facing, the kind of society we're going to build based on the framework of the individual and the family, well, then that story really gets changed. And you can see how the facts that we focus on, the things that we tell ourselves that are most important about our, about our history and the way we tell the story continues to change. And that will change the future of who we are and who we become. So that's, that kind of gives you a, an overarching understanding of just how a worldview is laid out. And so I'm going to just, I've given you a framework for biblical Christianity. I'll give you the actual terms that Noble uses. And then we're going to compare that to secular humanism for the last few minutes so that you can kind of see what those differences might be. And you can see how 
we moved from a biblical Christian worldview to a secular humanist worldview, and now we're moving to a postmodern worldview. And education, the educational systems, always play a huge role in perpetuating the worldview. And so it's not a surprise to find Unitarian ministers, which were a pretty secular, quote, religion at the time, and many university professors signed the Humanist Manifesto in 33. And so they went out into the schools. They had already been doing it. They just kind of officially, you know, declared it, wrote their manifesto and said, this is what we're doing. I mean, they weren't trying to hide anything like this is what we're doing. And then they went to the schools and did it. They promoted actively, intentionally, consciously, many of them promoted this secular humanist worldview. And now in the last Oh, 50, 40 years or so, postmodernism has done the same thing. And many of these professors are very open and honest about the fact that if they don't know the term postmodernism, which they usually do, that they are promoting those same ideas. But I think looking back at secular humanism will give you an even better understanding of how that movement happened. So here's some terms. I'm just going to run through the biblical Christian terms. The theology is theism. Philosophy is supernaturalism. There is something above human beings and beyond us, something that informs us, whispers to us, reveals to us that we submit to. It's not just us here on planet Earth. Now, actually, I'll give you the terms and then I'll explain it a little bit more. So, of course, where where biblical Christianity says theism, secular humanism says atheism. There is no God. So that informs a philosophy that's called naturalism. So there's no supernaturalism. Everything on earth is just materialistic. So then um, all that exists is nature and physical matter. Matter's the ultimate reality. And that means that science is kind of the new religion. How do we get answers to ultimate questions? How do we find truth? Not through revelation anymore through science, through naturalism, through our own human means, because we have to save ourselves. If, if there's no God to save us, we have to save ourselves. And if we're going to bring about a just society, um, we're going to have to create it ourselves. One of the things I found the most fascinating, and I might've said this in the last podcast, I can't remember, but in my study of worldviews, one of the things that was most fascinating to me is that each and every worldview seems to have a common goal. And this to me is another testament to the reality of a God and a shared human experience because everybody wants utopia. Everyone in some way or another is trying to bring about the best human society possible. And Christianity, biblical Judeo-Christianity says, we're going to give the power to the individuals and to the families, and they're going to bring it about through their free choice. But secular humanism says there's not a God and people can't always be trusted to make the right decisions for themselves. So although this is, this is, that's not true. That's more of a, that's more of a uh, communistic worldview. Humanism says people are still awesome. We love humanity. We need to do what's best for humanity. Not we need to obey God and his laws and make and, and serve each other. Secular humanism says we need to help people kind of self-actualize, become the best they could be. So 
matter is all there is, that's the philosophy, and then the ethics is ethical relativism. That, that's because when there isn't a God saying there's an ethical absolute, which is the Judeo-Christian perspective, then man is making the ethical framework. It's his own morality. This is, this is a lot of what Nietzsche said when he said, okay, God is dead. And he said this even before the Humanist Manifesto was written, but he could see what was coming down the pike with um, Freud and um, Darwin and evolution and all that kind of thing. And so he said, okay, well, God is dead. I guess we're deciding that as the cultural elite, as the thinkers. Well, he, we don't have his framework for morality, so we're going to have to create our own morality. And that's basically what this says. Uh, man decides what's right and wrong and socializes around it. And mankind has to determine their own morality. And so this lends itself to a circumstance where you've got a really prevalent your truth, my truth, which is also nurtured even more by the postmodernist perspective. And this is also what allows, what has allowed over the last hundred years, more and more of the idea of rather than real concrete personal responsibility, the idea is actually that everybody is just socialized. Somebody back in the day decided something was important and they created their own morality and then they forced it on everybody. And so... We're social creatures. We've been socialized. And if we live in a society that's been socialized around an ethic we don't believe in, then we just need to change the ethic. And that's what really has been going on. As you can see, that moral relativism is very prevalent. So the biology, of course, it's special creationism for the Judeo-Christians. Of course, for the secular humanists, it's Darwinian evolution. So it's a very different thing to say I evolved from a monkey than it is to say God created me, especially as his child. I, I think to say God created you is ennobling, but many people think it's childish and, and simplistic. To say that we evolved from monkeys is much more scientific, it's much more rational, etc., etc. That's the thinking. And so, um, Earth is an accident. Natural selection created us. We're constantly evolving. It also plays into this idea of um, progress or progressives. And Calvin Coolidge was talking about progressivism a hundred years ago. So it's an idea that really has come from these secular humanists. And it's the idea that man just keeps getting better. And on one hand, you can kind of see, oh, maybe they are like, there's, you know, not institutionalized slavery in America, except there's a huge rise in sex trafficking, which is a different form of slavery all over the world. And it's prevalent and it's going crazy and, and it's still very much supported. So I don't know, you know, but that's the biology that says uh, either this Darwinian evolution or God created man and created the earth for man and placed him here. So that's how that differs. And you can see that taking God and, and scripture out of schools and chipping away at those fundamental elements of the worldview, it was much easier then, especially at the college level, and especially at the college level is when the worldview is really hammered home. Um, 
young adults are in a very vulnerable place just having left the their home community and they are excited they want to change the world they're idealistic and so if they get professors that train them in certain worldviews they often adopt those if they don't if they're not really armed to understand what's happening to them and how a different worldview is is being promoted so, so the psychology then says since everything is matter we're synapses going firing in the brain and we're products of our upbringing and society from which it's almost po- impossible to break three free now stephen hawking was a real true honest atheist and he took this argument to its logical conclusion if everything is matter, there's no such thing as free choice because there's no soul in the body that can override what goes on in the mind. Uh, the brain is just the brain. It's just a physical entity. Wherever you're born, however you're raised, however you're socialized, that's how your brain is going to work. You don't really have a lot of choice. In fact, Stephen Hawking even goes so far as to say, you know, if I slap you across the face right now, that isn't my choice. That's just the mathematical conclusion of a whole bunch of um, impossible math equations for us to do, but we could show, given the time, we could show how it was all predestined and predetermined because of biology. And the psychology is no different. It's all just in the biology and in, in, in the physical body and in the physical brain. Whereas the Judeo-Christian says free choice is God's greatest gift to man and that even though we interact with our human body and our human body plays a huge role in who we are, we can transcend that and God can heal it. And there are other ways and means, according to our supernaturalistic perspective, that the human body and mind could be trained and um, mastered to some large degree. And it's interesting because many people that are atheistic in their frame of reference and try to be still very humanistic in terms of like loving humanity and thinking humanity is great, subscribe to, you know, they read self-help books and they promote self-help and all this kind of thing and really get behind the idea of free choice. They try to do it in scientific ways and teach people kind of scientific means to do that. But ultimately it's still part of the Judeo-Christian framework. And there's much of that going on. I don't have time to get into a lot of details right now. Um, we do, of course, work on this at greater length in level three and, and talk it through. But so much of who we still are as a culture, so much of what we still believe is important and valuable comes from the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's who we are. It's how we were, it's how the West has developed. It's framed what's most important and how we live our lives. Even something as simple as the value of philanthropy and the importance of giving is not an atheistic concept. So anyway, so that's the difference there. So that means, okay, so based on that framework, what kind of society should you build? Well, the society is all important because however you frame your society and build your laws, that's going to be the kind of people that you create. And so man uses science and reason to perfect himself and build a perfect world. That's this that's the secular humanist perspective and that's what we've been trying to do for the last 100 years. 
the family is not the fundamental unit of society. The individual is. And um, whatever it is, it, it becomes increasingly less important to socialize for a traditional family, to have laws that support the family. And so if you, if you see, if you, if you see where these first five or six areas of worldview inform, this is why I'm here. This is what's most important. This is how I live in the world. Then the logical consequences of those beliefs manifest in the law, the politics, the economics, and history. And we see those in flux. We see those constantly changing to match the new worldview that's being promoted. So the laws are made by men for man. There's not a higher law to inform them. And they still, there's still this reference to, okay, there's this golden rule you should do to those as you would be done by, you shouldn't encroach on others' rights. But if we're just evolving and it's the survival of the fittest, and if we are here to service evolution, then we shouldn't value things like preserving all kinds of human life. That's a totally illogical conclusion to follow that we should. And so people who are more purist, we see them as radical, but they're actually just following the logical path of where these arguments take you. Of course, we should do euthanasia. Of course, we should sterilize certain people. Of course, we should, you know, all of these things because, you know, of course, we should legalize abortion and because we're evolving and we see that those elements of society don't service us. We want the, the best to rise to the top. There have been plenty of individuals who have wanted to build a hybrid higher race. So I don't mean, I'm not trying to sound extreme and I know it may sound extreme, but if you get into the literature and you read from the leaders of these worldviews and you understand the kind of people that they were, education fundamentally changed its entire purpose when Dewey came on the scene. And Dewey and a handful of others could see the logical conclusion of a Darwinian evolutionist atheistic perspective. And that was socializing is everything. And when I first kind of entered the homeschool community, one of the things that, that a leader said, one of the first things he said was, tell people that you're homeschooling and they won't say what about their education. They'll say what about their social. And I did get that a lot, have gotten that a lot over the years. And I haven't always homeschooled all my kids, but it's been an educational option in our home. And I will say that a lot of people have been more concerned about their socialization. That was not a frame of reference 100, 150 years ago. That's not the question people would have asked. That is something that's part of the predominant secular humanist and now postmodernist worldview that, ed that the educational environment, the school environment exists to socialize. And that comes out of a different worldview. That's a different way of thinking about yourself and about the world. Dewey said... We have to socialize for this new worldview we want to promulgate. And so our school systems need to be places where children are socialized. Nobody cared about that very much until that point. Your kids came and went out of school as they could. The whole entire goal was to give them literacy and basic mathematical skills. And then, if possible, they could go on to higher education. 
And the number one priority for about the first 150 years educationally was to educate citizens, to teach them the basic tenets of how to run their own government so they could be involved in their own government and perpetuate more freedom for more future generations. So the laws then become whatever man comes up with that he thinks is best right now. And it's tough logically to reason through why there would be natural rights if evolution is it trumps all if we're products of evolution and our responsibility is to to service revolution and to preserve our planet so anyway i'm going long i'm sorry i've headed off on a lot of different tangents today you might see some things in terms of law like oh we're being soft on criminals um that would be a natural result there's no firm footing on natural laws and all of that kind of stuff and so Anyway, you make laws that promote that worldview. The politics, in politics you see a push for democracy. In other words, the individual trumps all. If an individual in today's world decides that they are a certain, you know, sexual orientation, gender orientation, whatever it is, then we applaud them for disrupting their family. We encourage them to seek out whatever whatever services them as an individual. If they don't love their spouse anymore and they're just done and exhausted, if they love someone else more, the, trans, the family is in constant flux at the service of the individuals in them. There isn't an incumbent responsibility to service the family first, to help hold the family together, to make personal sacrifices so that the family can remain a unit because it's so necessary for individuals to thrive and grow healthily, and it's so critical to preserving a healthy society. That's not the frame of reference. The new frame of reference with these new worldviews is that the individual reigns supreme, that all should be equal, and that often means sameness. And so we are often dragging everyone down to the lowest common denominator. You see this in our educational systems. So we want to drag the classroom down to the slowest common denominator. That Those few kids who are kind of slow need to, you know, stay on track because we don't leave kids behind. You know, we do a little bit of remedial help, but the point is, we care about the individual. God cares about the individual. Of course, the individual is important. But not every need and especially not every desire and wish and hope is more important than the family unit. So there's a balance to be struck there. I'm not saying that individuals don't matter. They matter very much. And our whole society is built on the importance of the individual. But you'll find these new worldviews pushing the individual at the destruction of all else. The destruction of societies, communities, religions, families, and even the social structure. If they need to do, we all need to bend over backwards for one individual to have what they want. Rather than the individual sometimes need to bend their will and their desires and their passions to what, to what the family or the, or the, the society needs. The economics, um, of course, with cosmic, with secular humanism, it's, it's socialism, that idea that 
that equality that really actually just becomes sameness, you know, we all get the same, you know, we all should get the same everything. That means that just logically follows that we should have the same stuff. So socialism is a huge push where everything is fair and everyone has the same amount. The, the means have to be controlled. There's no heaven, so we have to have heaven now. We have to create utopia ourselves. And of course, this just opens a vacuum of power. So if everyone's going to have the same stuff, somebody has to be owning and distributing that stuff. And so it just quickly deteriorates. And this is what you see in communist countries, because this is the model there. You see the power structure heading right up to the top and a few people having all the power. The power in republics is, especially democratic republics, is distributed as among as many people as possible. And that keeps a, an equal playing field. It keeps power from being centralized. But the socialistic economic model always centralizes power, which people think that somehow it's going to give them more power, but it actually gives them less power. And then history is our last one. Everything is seen through the lens of evolution. So that's what you got in school, right? And that's what we get in our TED Talks. That's what we get in our college classes. The new frame of reference is Darwinian evolution. That's the new assumption that somehow we know without a doubt that that's how man got here and that's where how it all happened. And so we've taken that new belief system, which cannot be empirically proven. And it's important to recognize that so much of this cannot be empirically proven. You can find evidence and faith is built on evidence. Every worldview requires a good healthy amount of faith to believe it and sustain it. And every individual goes out and looks for the evidence that sustains and upholds the worldview that they're currently believing. But the honest in heart, the truth seekers will look where the evidence doesn't fit or is flawed or is uh, faulty or doesn't make sense. And they'll work hard to try to put elements together of a, of a greater truth and see the, see, see the greater truth. But the history again is rewritten. It was rewritten by the secular humanists to take God out and to re-educate around the evolutionary model and that prominent worldview that talks about the biology in a certain way and the psychology in a certain way. And now it's being reframed again through a postmodernist lens. And so we're picking and choosing certain elements of history. We're distorting those elements. We're trampling over many other facts that are also equally true to make a narrative of victimhood. Postmodernism is a, is a worldview that's very victim driven. It pits people against each other and encourages them to seek redress for wrongs and to see themselves as victims and all of that kind of thing. And so we're rewriting the narrative to cater to, again, hyper cater to the individual to the point where we're now asking college professors to give trigger alerts on anything they might say in class that anybody in the class might have a hard time with, which of course is absolutely fundamentally impossible to execute. But it's that and, and people want to, you know, in every, what you'll find with that philosophy that, that, that layers on top of the theology, what you'll find is people trying to find meaning within the framework of that worldview. 
And so they always want someone to serve, someone to help, and they go about it in a certain way that's in, that's in harmony with the worldview that they're constructing. But of course, some worldviews are healthier than others, and some are better in line with natural laws and principles than others. Some completely ignore those natural laws and principles. So that's a little bit more on worldviews. I may do a third one for you with maybe a little bit different frame of reference for looking at worldviews. I'd encourage you to go out and, you know, definitely if you're a Judeo, in the, if, if you're part of the Judeo-Christian worldview, which if you're here listening to me, you probably are. You don't need to be, but you might be. Or just a theistic worldview and trying to put together some of these other pieces for yourself. You might want to go read the Humanist Manifesto. You, there's, there's, I think, three. The first one's the most important, then they add some on later on. I think the first publication was 33. Um, you'll see some important names signing that document. And I think that's telling. And you could compare it. You could start there and you could think about that worldview in relationship to your own worldview and, and compare those. So thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that that was helpful. I hope that you um, learned something or thought a little bit differently about something. I, of course, speak from my own frame of reference and from my own experience. I don't claim to have like all the answers and to have it all figured out. I'm on the journey with you trying to learn and grow and think through things and come to realities and truths for myself. But I hope that that helped you think about some questions maybe you hadn't posed to yourself and be introduced to some ideas that might be helpful for you in the future. Please join me next time. Please share this out if it was helpful to you. We'd love a review on the podcast apps. We'd love you to comment on the podcast pages. Remember that you can go to the missiondrivenmom.com and always find the podcast notes. Um, some of those show up on your on your app as well. Quotes, timestamps, that kind of thing. And we we always put, you know, the books that we're referencing and that kind of thing. You can comment, ask questions there. You can also go <clears throat> to the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and ask follow-up questions there as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a wonderful day and I will see you next time.